My name is Jeffrey Sidoris, and this might be one of the most process-driven episodes of Process Driven Yet. I've known Carl Taylor for more than a decade. I was introduced to his work by my friend Patrick in the form of a DVD of Carl's Photography Masterclass. What struck me straight away was Carl's enthusiasm for photography. Well, that and his near-encyclopedic knowledge of the medium. Now, 12 years after its initial release, Carl has created a brand new remastered version of his original Introduction to Photography, built on a decade of learning and refining what was already an incredible understanding of both the art and science of photography. In this conversation, we talk about some of the things he's learned over the past 10 years, including a deep dive into the biology of how we see and process images. Here's my conversation with Carl Taylor. Please listen carefully. You know, one of the things that I really love about talking to you is and have for the past decade is your transparency. There, mm. there, there's no, this is my secret. This is my technique. This is, this is exclusive to me. Your willingness to share your knowledge and insights into your business and what's <clears> been going on in your business is, is a pretty rare thing. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I mean, yeah, I'm happy to, uh, to, to, to share my experiences and I'm not sort of secretive about, you know, uh, failures and successes. I mean, obviously let's not forget though, that some of the knowledge to do with the photography, we share at a price because mm -hmm. we are in business to do that, you know? So we don't share everything related to every little bit of photography knowledge for free. I don't, I certainly don't do that, but I do, I am totally happy to share my experiences without veiling anything behind us, a, a secret wall right. or something. You know? Well, you know what? I'm I'm going to have to disagree with you on that because you're getting ready to relaunch this new course that is, this is the course that put you on the map, arguably, and this time you're giving yes. it away for free. So you are giving it out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, we are. And I mean, but I suppose that's because partly the market has shifted as well for us. When, when we started, as you know, the introduction to photography course came about because there was a huge upsurge at that time in interest in digital cameras. Digital cameras really only became popular, you know, 11, 12 years ago. And, and we noticed this as, as a business and as photographers. And that grew to the idea of coming up with this introduction to photography course. And that was a course that we sold and was very successful. It was serialized on popular photography magazine in America. And, um, yeah, it was, it was huge, but now the, the goalposts have shifted somewhat or to a great degree, really, because our main business now in the education sector, as we've grown into this larger education business is now on the more specialized skills of professional photography, lighting, post-production, conceptualization, pre-visualization, all of the more, you know, the, the, the more in-depth level knowledge mm -hmm. so the beginner market isn't really our market anymore but we we did want to give something back and we could have just put put the old introduction course out there for free but we decided no actually let's bring it up to date and make it better see i don't think you could have <laughs> knowing knowing <laughs> you for the past decade i don't think you would have been satisfied by just putting it out there at all no because i, I, I don't i mean i don't yeah i don't want to put anything bad out there and georgie who works here she made a really good point she said look you know th there are elements of this course that looking dated mm -hmm. like your jeans that you're wearing for, for instance carl <laughs> uh, the clothes that you're dressed in <laughs> yeah he's got he carl had these ripped up jeans and a frankie say relaxed t-shirt on yeah, through exactly. most of it <laughs> i got that off you <laughs> um so, so no we set about we filmed it all um or most of it and we one one thing we especially did was made a lot more effort on the graphics uh as you know it's become easier to produce decent quality graphics and mm -hmm. stuff in premiere after effects and all the rest of it for for for, for people like us so um so yeah we just redid the whole thing and georgie is also um one of the team here, she's created a 100 page ebook to accompany the course. And the book 
that she's done the ebook um it's literally it's a standalone product in itself you know mm-hmm. uh, it's really good i mean it says a supplement to the course and it covers the things in the course and it adds some additional elements of a few things that maybe uh, aren't covered as in depth in the course so so yeah so that's that's all much pretty ready to go so um we're going to be putting it out there for free hopefully it will get people interested and excited about photography or those that are new to it or those that have put a camera down on the shelf in frustration maybe they'll think about picking it up again but you know it's as i said to you before it's not totally altruistic because we want traffic to the website mm-hmm. um so by putting a free course out there um one you, you know if, if our main market is uh photography lighting and pro level photography Every one of those people that's into pro lighting and studio or whatever, they all had to start with picking up a camera originally. Right. So this for us feels like a sensible stepping stone into our platform. Mm-hmm. Come and see how I teach. Come and see how I break things down into bite-sized pieces and experience how effectively you will learn and then park that and come back to us in a couple of years or six months when you want to step it up a gear. Right. Um, so that's kind of the ethos behind it, really. Well, you did do something interesting, though, and that is that you you didn't put it behind any sort of paywall or subscription form or give us your email and we'll give you that. There's no exchange at all. It's just come no. here and, and watch this course. Yeah, and that's because, that's because we believe – you know, if you put it behind any sort of sign up or whatever, it, obviously it'll deter more than 60 or 70 percent of people away because mm-hmm. people are precious about giving their emails away. And to be honest, it's much better if the course is just widely shared uh, because people realize anyone can watch it without any limits, because if it's widely shared, it becomes more viral and then it puts our name out there. Uh, to a greater degree, which is a positive for us. So no, we weren't we weren't really worried about about you know give us your email to get this free course. Although in saying that, you have to give us your email to get the one hundred page ebook. Mm-hmm. But you don't need the ebook to do the course. The course is standalone video course, ten chapters. I think it's nearly two hours long in total now with all the new elements and graphics. It's got a number of great examples and we're really, really pleased with it. I said to the guys, I was really proud of everyone that's worked on it. I said, it's it's a really nice production, really nice piece. And I said, hopefully, the way I look at it is hopefully when people see it and watch it, I want them at the end of it to be going, I can't believe that was free, you yeah. know? Yeah. Uh, which is, you want to put that good feeling in people's minds because then they'll remember that and then when they want to think about maybe moving on to natural light portraiture or using some speed lights or buying a couple of studio lights, then, then you know, will be remembered as the people that helped them on their journey, you know? Mm-hmm. So do do that, you feel, because one of the things that I really resonated with about that first series, and you and I have talked about this a number of times, was the level of enthusiasm that you have for photography, both as a, as a technical pursuit and as an artistic pursuit. How has that changed in the past 10 years? Hasn't changed at all. Not at Um, all. I think I've learned a few bigger words. (laughs) 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 I mean, I tell you what, actually I, we did a shoot last night on the, on the platform where we were doing still lifes of an egg so I had this challenge to shoot an egg in a number of different ways and how you could use things like color theory, conceptualization, uh, and then lighting to describe the emotion and the mood. You wouldn't believe how enthusiastic I got about an egg because I think it, what, what I really enjoyed, like, for example, with that particular show was imparting that information to people and seeing them get it. Right. It's like, okay, he's just taking a simple object, but things like the perspective, the lens choice, the angle of view choice, then the lighting, the emotive element of the lighting and why this light gives this emotion, this one gives a different emotion. And demonstrating that to them live, Mm -hmm. they're like, wow, I can really see it. Hmm. So that always makes me feel good whenever I, and even when I, you know, occasionally do 
um, live shows at, for an audience at an event or something for, for, for someone, um, you know, when, when you can do something that's people go, right, I really start to understand it. You see sort of a light bulb go off in their, in their eyes. Uh, and that, that is always pleasing for me. Right. And I think my enthusiasm for photography won't die because I've always got an enthusiasm for creating images, whether I'm creating images just on my own in the studio or with an assistant or for an audience, it doesn't matter. I'm just excited about creating images. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in saying that, there, you know, there have been times in business where business, you, you know, like any business, you've had struggles and ups and downs. And it can suck the life out of you sometimes. And I'm sure in the same way for you as a, as a designer, you know, you can lose the momentum or the, the, the passion for the art because mm-hmm. you, you almost feel that it's failing you somewhat or, you know, and you, you know, I've always dedicated my, nearly my entire life to photography. So when things don't go well, you almost feel like it's betraying you. Right. And I think that has an effect sometimes on creativity. Um, and but but when that happens, I think it's best to just step back from it for a little bit and and reset, hit the reset button. Right. Then then go again, you know. And I often find as well. I know you, you you've talked on many of your previous uh, podcasts and things about creativity uh, in the arts, but I always find for me, um, I've never become depressed about anything in that sense. But I do sometimes feel the need to stop. And I find my creativity comes in waves, mm. you know, uh, and I don't try to force creativity when I know I'm not in the flow. You know, it's it's like I could I do a lot of commercial shoots and commercial shoots for me are just client gives me a brief. This is the advert that's going to be produced. They want this, this and this. That's just a, like a walk in the park for me because someone's just told me what they need, how they want it to look. I might consult with them and say, well, look, I think you should do this, do this. It's almost like a color by numbers. It's so easy for me in that respect. Um, and I don't want to sound arrogant in that way, but you're not the producer. They're the producer. You're the executor. Mm. Okay. So for me doing commercial product photography, advertising images, Yes, there's creativity involved, but you're following someone else's desire or requirements. Mm -hmm. So I don't ever feel that the creative juices need to be full flowing for me to accomplish that because the experience takes over for that. But when it comes to doing my own shoots, like these ones I was just doing recently and some other ones I've done recently, I have to be in the right frame of mind to give it all. And, um, that sometimes will determine that like the guys will say, right, are we going to do that shoot that you can, that you've already sketched out? And I'll say, no, not this week, you know, because I know the way I'm feeling. It's not that I get depressed or anything about the art. It's just that I know when, um, I just feel like one of those people that I know when I've got more energy, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and then apply the energy more enthusiastically i'd say i'm always enthusiastic but there's still like a wavelength right a waveform maybe that i know i can ride the wave and do the job better at that peak moment rather than the trough if you know what i mean mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Go, go back to something you said a minute ago about being a uh, an executor versus a producer is that something that for you was a little bit of a struggle early on in your career accepting that the brief was what was important, not what you brought to the brief or, or you weren't, you weren't hired for, for necessarily thinking outside the box. You were hired because you could produce what they wanted. Was, is that hard to wrap your head around for you as a, as a younger photographer, as a newer photographer? Um, Well, when I, when I first started in photography, I mean, if we go back to the very beginning, my earliest jobs in photography was assisting, or was working in professional dark rooms, printing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Cibachrome, uh, Ilfachrome, or whatever it is now, etc. Th- then moving into assisting in studios, and then eventually I worked as a photojournalist uh, for myself, freelance for a few years. So you you weren't following a brief then; you were following a storyline and trying to c- 
collect the right images to go with that story. So you had a lot more freedom in that sense. Mm -hmm. Was the storyline given to you or or did you did you pitch the storyline? Um, it depends. Uh, sometimes there were simple, uh, simple things that the magazine needed a few images to go with a particular storyline wasn't particularly difficult mm-hmm. more cultural. And then there were other times where I'd come up with the story of what I wanted to shoot or the, the people or the culture, um, and the, the, the geographical location. Mm-hmm. And then the magazine would say to you, look, sounds great. You deliver it. We'll buy it. But it was freelance. So you don't get paid until you deliver it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just had to get approval from them that they would be interested in the story. So you would present the story. Um, so for example, I've photographed the, the Mentawi people in uh, Sumatra, Dayaks in Borneo, um, the uh, Dani uh, tribes in uh, Papua New Guinea or Irian Jaya. So you'd present the story that you want to go and photograph this culture, these people, how they live, what they do, et cetera, et cetera. And the magazine would say, yes, that that we, we'd be interested in that if you can deliver it. Mm-hmm. So you obviously had a lot more freedom. You know, you're traveling for months and you're shooting and shooting. You got all the trials and tribulations of working in the field, et cetera. But there was no restrictions or art direction on that type of photography whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But when so when I moved into commercial photography, um, which came off the back of working as an assistant in commercial studios and becoming interested in light and studio lighting and that manipulation of light, which is what's now absorbed my entire passion of photography is really about manipulating light. And I don't even like to use the word manipulating because I feel light is like a magic, special, godlike ingredient. So I'm not really manipulating it. I'm guiding it, you know, Mm. and it's allowing me to do it almost in many ways. Um, so I, I, I feel like light is, it's almost like some sort of, yeah, some sort of just magical, um, quantity that I get to work with and I'm fascinated by it. So that's one of the things that that's the biggest passion I would say I get from the the type of images I produce is the way hopefully I can control light. You combine that with other things. So yes, obviously when you're then given a brief by an art director for an advertising shoot, you are not coming up with the idea for the shot. You're not coming up either, even the composition of the shot is decided because the layout of the advert, but you are still in charge of controlling the light because they don't understand that. They don't know. They understand mood and they understand the, you know, tone of voice and the sort of feeling they want for the shot and maybe the color, but they still really don't know how to control the light to get it to do what they want. So they give you a load of mood boards And they say, is this possible? Is that possible? And what I actually love, even though a lot of the creative elements are taken out of the equation, you're still in control of the light and creating the emotion with the light. And you actually can improve on their ideas because of your knowledge of light. So for me, that's always been satisfying. And then to be blunt, when you're starting out as a commercial photographer, um, you know, when I was in in, in, uh, my so I'm, I did the photojournalism in my mid-20s and then became a commercial photographer in my late 20s. When you're starting out, you're just grateful to get the work. Mm-hmm. You know? So you're not going to really be too worried about whether you feel you've got enough creative control. You're just happy every job that's coming through the door. But even to, to today, when art directors or, or clients, ad agencies come in the studio here and work with me, I'm still satisfied from the experience of, you know, controlling the light for them to deliver the result and the mood and the emotion that they wanted in the shot. Obviously, with the education platform or with creating my own personal work, then, yeah, I've got full creative control. And like the images I was just doing yesterday, I concept them, come up with the idea, the narrative, consider all of the elements the location or the set in the studio, et cetera. So you have total control. So yes, you, you, you feel like you are doing more creatively, but I don't, I I don't feel any negativity towards doing commercial work that it isn't creative, even though you're, even though I said, I'm just executing it. I I get my passion from controlling the light. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment in that transition from, 
photojournalism to studio photographer and commercial photographer, was there a moment, kind of an aha moment where you saw what you could do with light or what was possible with light? Because it sounds like you were pretty, you were pretty happy at the with the photojournalism and the travel, and it seems mm-hmm. like such a dramatic shift to go. Okay, I'm going to leave this behind in favor of this new thing that I find myself kind of obsessed with. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because I didn't really understand light that well when I was working doing photojournalism. Hmm. I understood photography, the moment, and research and planning and all the things that were needed to create a successful image or story. And I recognized through experience of shooting, as all photographers do, that there are periods and times of the day when the light just looks better, you know, that magic hour period, or maybe when there's some really beautiful cloud um, formations that are just letting light through particular spots and spaces. And and you start to appreciate light and realize when opportunities arise from light, but you don't, you're not in control of it. You're Mm -hmm. just working with what you're given and you recognize when it's good what you're given. Um, so, so, so that was something that evolved. But what happened was I did the photojournalism thing. It was a hand-to-mouth existence, one job to the next, and living out of a backpack and traveling and living out of a backpack. And, you know, eventually it just wasn't working out for me. I wasn't going to make a full-time career out of it. I was freelancing. And it was good while I was doing it, but I just started to get to a point in my life. I thought, well, I'm getting towards my late twenties and this isn't going to pay the bills properly if I want to settle down. So I just started to uh, look at other things. And then I, um, you know, I ended up assisting in a studio and I started to see these guys controlling light to make something like a vodka bottle or a whiskey bottle or a perfume or a food shot or whatever and they were controlling light to make something boring look amazing. And that just fascinated me. And that's when I became captivated by that. And then I kind of moved my energy in that direction. Hmm. So it is a strange transition, I admit. But it was partly for a business decision in that I knew I wanted to continue a career in photography, but I didn't feel there was any future for me in photojournalism. Uh, and I just kind of accidentally ended up discovering studio photography by working as an assistant. In right. How long were you assisting before you decided, right, I, I can do this. I need to step out. F- about a year. About a year. Uh-huh. Yeah, a year. Because I think I'm quite, I mean, obviously I'd already, it wasn't like I didn't know anything about photography. Right. You know, I, I, it was just I didn't know anything about light or controlling light. So, um it was just simply learning that. And there's no better way to learn uh, than assisting, you know, people that know what they're doing. And especially if you're passionate about it and you're excited about it. And um, I I walked away from that thinking, yeah, right, I could do this. But what's really interesting off the back of that is that was, uh, you know, that was more than 20 years ago. And I thought I kind of knew my stuff until about, 10 years ago when I really knew my stuff, mm. you know? Um, so there was a, there was a whole level of thinking, you know, about light and how to control light and the basics of hard light and soft light. But actually when you go down the rabbit hole, there's, it, it goes so much deeper if you really, really get into it and start actually looking at some of the physics to do with why, a parabolic reflector, a proper parabolic reflector will give a certain look. And some people claim they can't see a difference. It's either soft or it's hard, but it's not. It's beyond that. They might not be able to see it, but emotionally you can perceive it. And so will ordinary people. And there are many elements to do with even flagging a light and just putting a tiny little bit of additional shade. And then a lot of it is to do with post the post-production elements. And I'm not talking about comping or changing things dramatically because I don't like to do that. I'm just talking about burning and dodging, but you know, people burn and dodge randomly without even knowing why they're doing it. If you understand, you know, things like left to right, uh, gaze bias, and you understand about predetermined contrast levels and how the eye will move around an image uh, based on that. And even things like reducing color intentionally, 
um, so that the image becomes more absorbable because your brain is not having to process as much other information that can cause distraction. So I always try to deliver images that have high impact clarity, quite simplicity to them in many ways. But like I created uh, not so long ago, this uh, marine pollution environment, uh, environmental image of a baby sat with a hypodermic needle in a big valley of marine litter and plastic pollution. Yeah, it's very, a, that's a very is, disturbing image, Carl. <laughs> it's a very disturbing image. And it was on, on the cover of Geographical last month. And it's been used by uh, marine organizations and scientists all over the world now because I put it out there for free as a charity thing. So it's been, you know, it was, it was on the BBC and all sorts of stuff. So it's been a, a very effective, powerful image, but it's a very uh, complicated image because it's not like the normal shots I shoot, which is normally an object on a platform with really nice lighting so that it's simplicity and clarity. This was a very busy image. Now, when you deal with a really busy image like that with lots of content and lots of competing textures and competing colors and competing contours, you have to then figure out how you're going to guide the eye. So you have to guide the eye through very careful use of burn and dodge, so luminosity values, but then the color can become overwhelming in an image like that. So in that particular image, you think you're looking at some really nice colors in that image, but if you actually really study it closely, the images have been very carefully and selectively drawn back some of the colors that were sort of different, but in the same palette have been shifted to match each other. And the color palette has been reduced so that there isn't, you know, such a vast rainbow of colors that there was in the original. Then that's combined with the burn and dodge. It's also the lighting in the initial stages in the studio. You know, it's been lit in a certain way to emphasize certain places in the image. But you see, it's that level of understanding of lighting and, you know, color is light. You know, color is just a frequency of light. So it's that level of understanding that is way beyond where I was 10 years ago, mm -hmm. you know. And, and, and that's why I always find it fascinating because I don't, I don't ever consider that there is nothing left to learn. You know, I, I'm, I read physics books. I read scientific papers. Um, I do this workshop with Tim Flack, who also studies all of this sort of stuff. And I am hugely passionate about like learning more about light and, and how the, how humans perceive images. As a matter of fact, that's probably one of the most important things that, that I've asked myself in the last few years is rather than photography and everything associated with recording an image, I stepped back um, because of conversations with Tim Flack and asked, how do we see images rather than how do we record images? And that's stepping back and asking how we see images. The, the physicality of how we see the them. The physicality yeah, of the, yeah. bi the biological process mm -hmm. of how we see images and how we process them in the, in the brain, how that's done and why it's done a certain way, why we've got certain neurons that get more excited by diagonal lines, why we read images from left to right, no matter what culture we're from, why certain combinations of tonal range or certain colors, uh, like in um, Monet's uh, painting, uh, was it ben, uh, Le, Le Guanhui de Ben or something, the, the, the bath of frogs, why certain color combinations cause optical illusions. So I became fascinated by all of that stuff. And that led me to read a lot more deeper sort of physics and stuff about it, about why why we react a certain way to images. And that's become um, a large part of my process now in when I produce an image, I'm conscious of these things because I'm more conscious now of how humans see images mm -hmm. and biologically why they see images a certain way. So I apply that knowledge in the production of the image now. G give me an example. Give me kind of a real world example of how of how some of these ideas and how some of these, uh, how biology specifically has affected how you 
either light or compose an image. For people that are listening that may be kind of scratching their heads, how does that translate from, from theory to practice? Well, okay, if you if, first of all, if you if you immediately know that um, we, we, we read images in from, from the left to the right, but not in a horizontal line. As a matter of fact, the, the most useful path into an image visually is from the lower left up to the center. So what Tim does in a lot of his work, what I do in mine now, is I direct people into my images that way in many ways with a diagonal diagonal line, diagonal shadow, or some element of components that will step you into the image or the contrast or something in the lower left will take you across the page in that direction. Then you have to think about not letting them out of the right-hand side of the image. So let, let me, I don't know, I mean, I'm, I know we're, we're doing a podcast here, but let me give you an example. So for, uh, there is, um, there's an image of uh, a Tom Ford bottle, uh, uh, aftershave perfume bottle lying on its back in some liquid uh, on, on my website. Now that's a commercial product style image, but that's been carefully post-production work so that the, the, the patch of water, the curve of the wave on the lower left has mm -hmm. been highlighted to take you to the highest contrast point, which is on the left-hand side of the bottle. Just where below where the, the bottle meets the liquid. Yep. Yeah, and I'm not even looking at the image, and I can tell you this. Mm -hmm. And then the waves on the right, there's some beautiful ripples on the right, but they were too beautiful and they were too high contrast. They're near the right-hand side of the shot. So those have been completely toned down, decontrasted, reduced in contrast, so that you don't, you don't escape from the image on that side. So you're trying to keep the viewer going up from the lower left into the shot, and then circling around within the shot without escaping out of the shot, because you know I've, I've you know everyone gets into composition when they when they start photography they're obsessed with composition rule of thirds golden spiral golden ratio and I've come to realise after twenty five years that it's mostly bollocks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don't hold back, Carl. Just tear so, down and, every. And the reason is some of it. It, yes, you know, things like rule of thirds definitely for beginners help you conform the image, lay it out aesthetically that looks better than just sticking the person in the middle shot. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But none of it is as important as just keeping the viewer in the image. That is the only objective because a successful image can only be judged by how long the viewers want to look at it. That's it. So if you can do everything possible to take them into the picture in the right direction, circulate them in the image so that they want to go round it several times and study it and don't get taken out of it, and it holds their attention, the longer it holds their attention, then the more successful it is. Right. That's really the only sort of basis I think you can apply to an image, the, the success of an image is literally how long will it hold the viewer's attention for? And that is essentially what, what I'm doing with lighting or the post-production to the lighting uh, or my choice of content. And, and, and it has many things, you know, it, it's, it's, you, you know, you're talking about the visual processes there, but it, it's to do with many things. It's to do with facial recognition. It's to do with um, emotion and narrative, you know, even the narrative in the image, the 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 the, the, con the conceptual part of the image, what it kind of makes you feel. So, for example, I've got an image on my website of two lipsticks stood on the very edge of what looks like a, a giant diving board or something. Right, right. And but but when you look at that image, without even having to tell your audience who'd look at that image, you immediately you 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 kind of uh, project those two lipsticks into being human figures or people, you start to think about the drop, the, the edge, mm -hmm. the, the anxiety. Yeah. The sort of precariousness that. of them at the edge. Exactly. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. So that is what I introduced into a lot of my work. And like, like the shot I was working on last night was an egg and I put an egg in a similar situation, but I made it look like it was on the edge of a tall building. The tall building was just made of white formica, but it looked like it was a block shape lit in a certain way and it felt ominous and the egg was right on the edge, but it was just an egg and it was leaning over because we glued it. 
We glued the egg so that it just had a little bit of lean. So it looked like it was looking over the edge, but a little bit too precariously Hmm. that it might accidentally go. And everyone knows what happens if you go over the edge, especially for an egg like Humpty Dumpty. Boom. (laughs) And but but it's adding that sort of ambiguous narrative into the image that helps you hold the viewer's attention. So then on top of that, you also have to add the emotion that matches that narrative. And you add that emotion through light. So the and, and you also add it through color or lack of color. So so what 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 we'll see, for example, in that um the image I said about the baby amongst all the rubbish is that image was far too complex with texture and color and narrative to all be absorbed biologically by a human mind without it becoming uh, distracting. So you have to think about, right, the, the human mind can't process all this color and this narrative and this texture and this lighting and this complexity without getting frustrated. So you have to decide what to take back. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and then doing that, you 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 kind of control the viewer's experience a little right. bit. I mean, obviously to do with the the composition and how you decide to lay it out and everything else. But all of these factors have to work together, I believe, to create a successful image. And I say I believe, I don't believe, I know. Right. I know. Well, okay. and, it, and it looks like, to your point, in this image, it looks like you've pulled some of the contrast down at the edges. You've yeah. you've allowed some of the saturation to stay in. What is it? Is it? rope or netting that the little baby's sitting on it looks like you've allowed some of the saturation and contrast to be to I've left be, the yellow one yeah. yeah 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 but then the rest of that it's it, it feels very painterly really it is it's like a renaissance painting mm-hmm. style to it because that's the, the the color that i've basically taken it out of it mm-hmm. and then if you notice the green elements in there yep so essentially if you actually ask yourself what colors are in there there's a lot of green sort of teal cyan-y color. Mm-hmm. Now, those colors were all over the place in the real shot. There was stuff that was blue, vivid blue. A lot of fishing net stuff is very vivid blue. There was bright green stuff because some fishing nets are bright green as well. But there was this mixture of that color palettes of blues, greens, and teals and cyans that were very vivid. So I just pulled them all back into the same color. Mm-hmm. So that they, they're not competing with each other anymore. No. And if you squint, I mean, this is something that we learned in school. If you squint, it kind of removes the detail and you can see that these are all very similar values. Exactly. In terms so of luminance. You're, you're taking the confusion yeah. away. Yeah. But if you squint, exactly, exactly the right technique, because what you do when you squint and you look through your eyes, you're turning um, high frequency spatial information into low frequency information. And in doing so, you're now left seeing the tonal values And if you now squint at that image of the baby through your eyes, you'll see that the baby luminosity is significantly brighter than everything apart from that bit of rope going over that boy on the left Mm -hmm. there. Yeah, sort of left mid-ground. That's deliberately highlighted to take you into the image. Mm -hmm. That's your diagonal into the image. That's my diagonal in. That's the kicker into that part of the shot. Now, um, you know, the, these you, you can't control everything in photography in the way you can like a painting, because in a painting, you can put everything where you want and paint it how you want. So you are, you have to have some element of flexibility and compromise in a photograph. But when people look at this image, for example, of this, this baby in there, one of the f- common things that people say to me, they go, oh, I love the colors. And I always find that fascinating because I actually said, well, do you know the colors are 60% reduced from what they are mm. and they've all been shifted? Right. You know, but they love them because they've been able to process them more easily with all the rest of the information. So the color palette that's there, it's almost like people don't realize the colors are, are significantly reduced. They don't realize that this has all been toned back intentionally. Uh, and obviously the lighting in there has been directed. If you look at the rays of light coming through the clouds in the background, which is obviously a superimposed background, sure. the lighting matches the direction of those rays. So the baby could be getting struck by another patch of light coming through those clouds. The lighting on the items is very much much more pocket-like. So you've got blips, what feels like blips of light that could be coming through patches of cloud. And that's all sort of done deliberately to create that sort of post-apocalyptic atmosphere mm-hmm. in there, you know? Now, if if you look at this, and I'm uh, 
I'm sure that you have, but if you look at this side by side, like a diptych, not processed to the degree that with the colors naturally where they were, what's the reaction to as a viewer between the two? Does the other one seem sort of garish by comparison? Yeah, garish is a good word because the type of stuff that is in the photo, remember that we had to take the photo was part of a, a marine pollution project. So we had to use stuff that had actually come out of the ocean that was marine pollution. Mm-hmm. So I was stuck with what I was given. I couldn't choose the stuff. Ah. Um, so therefore, those colors were going to be in the shot no matter what. So the other, yeah, without the, 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 the post-production work on the color, it would have been garish. So it had to be dealt with. Um, the image itself is still lit well. Mm-hmm. But there's so much going on in an image like this that the additional color would have been, I found, too much to process. Mm-hmm. And and this image is quite removed from my usual style because yeah. I'm very much more about simplicity. Um, so I don't normally have so many complex and competing textures right. in an image. Yeah, so, I, I would imagine uh, you wouldn't know where to look. That you, you would, would you, yeah, exactly. you would be sort of erratically going across the image rather than allowing yourself to be sort of guided gently across it. It would. And and there's, there's little things in there as well. Like you can see there on the right hand side, there's a fishing crate with a a broken rusty fork sticking out of it. Now that fork is, is, is got a little bit of a highlight on it, but it's, it's a pointing object. Mm -hmm. So it points you back towards the baby. And then I've curved that rope running from there deliberately so that you keep, in that you don't go out of there, you follow that rope down and then you're back into the circular motion again. Right. So, you know, so, the, the way I've positioned things in there has been very selective. Also, if you look at the center of the shot from the toilet seat, which is a lower left item again, mm-hmm. there's also a path of neutrality to the baby. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I deliberately set all the transparent bottles so that your eye, it's another lower left to center lead in. Okay, so let me ask you now, knowing knowing all of this and getting to this to this almost new level of of knowledge in terms of technical knowledge. Yeah. How how does that affect how you look at some of the older work? Do you? Uh, uh, well, yeah, that, that that's that's a good point. I mean, some of it I've binned. Mm-hmm. Um, because I I'd say that all of my best work has been probably in the last seven or eight years. Um, there are still a few older items on there. I've got a sort of nostalgia factor in my commercial site, um, on reportage, which has got a lot of my older work in there. And I think, I suppose some of it, you know, one of the interesting conversations I've had with a lot of professionals about this is that some photographers are able to do this, but they don't know why they're doing it mm-hmm. because they just instinctively have a feeling for what is right. So they do deliver great work but i think people like gregory crutzen understand this stuff mm-hmm. very well and a lot of cinematic uh you know cinematographers understand this stuff very well so they actually apply it deliberately right but right. there are other photographers that are successful or produce really competent work that may just have a natural feeling for this you know mm-hmm. and, and 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 i guess maybe some of my older work some of the time I got it right, and I may have kept those images, but most of the stuff on my website, I would say, is more recent, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, and it's, it's, not, it's not always – you can't always control it. I mean, I, I did a, really sh- a shot I really like recently of um, this orange motorbike, which is on the, on the website. And I like it because it's a very difficult product to shoot. So many angles, textures, surfaces, and all the rest of it. But I couldn't really control too much the elements of it because it's a motorbike, you know. All I could make the decision was was that I wanted the left, the light to come in from more the left-hand side. But overall, I had to concern myself more with the angularity and the um, you know, the, the actual sort of design of the motorbike itself and make that look nice, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so you can't always do it, right? but it's, it's still, it's still applied in a lot of my work wherever I can, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, 
that you know i've got i've got i can i can reel off loads of examples on my website where i'm the same application it, it, the same process is, is in my work but in my older work if it happened in my older work as i say more than nine ten years ago then it was probably an accident mm-hmm. or it was an instinctive feeling and that that's 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 how it happened now when you i mean you've collaborated with some some really interesting photographers and there are a couple that stand out tim of course tim flack mm-hmm. and urs yeah. from brown color yeah are they similar in terms of how they approach light because it, it seems like urs brings that that almost more intuitive level of of process whereas tim seems more and again never having met him i'm just i'm going off of how you've spoken about him but he seems more sort of analytical and and research driven yeah tim tim flack is a very intelligent chap he's the person that actually uh put me onto a lot of these concepts mm-hmm. in the first place uh that led me to to research it even further and tim and i run a workshop together now to teach these concepts to other photographers and um, oars is slightly different in that oars doesn't necessarily appreciate these concepts but what oars does have is a, a encyclopedic knowledge of how light works because he actually knows physics. He studied physics, he studied mathematics, and he designs some of the uh, lighting modifiers for Broncolor. So, he, you know, he has to know the physics of light and he he understands the physics of, of how to control light very well. And I've actually learned some really interesting things from Oz off the back of that, mm-hmm. but he doesn't apply the, the human visual process uh, side of things, the biological process to, to his work in the same way that Tim and I would. Mm-hmm. So he's coming at it from even, even a more sort of removed technical perspective. Yeah, almost like a scientist. Yeah. Way. Yeah. 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 But and it sounds I, interesting that you've been able to in working with both of them, you've sort of been able to formulate your own hybrid of each of their processes. Yeah, I suppose you have, because I do love the science mm-hmm. behind the art, and I do love the art as well. But again, for me, it's it's the light. I, I just, I'm just, you know, I'm fascinated by what you can do with light in just the subtlest little tinges of color shifts one side or the other putting a slight cyan gel on one light or a tiny little bit of yellow on another light and then bringing them in together in the same shot and 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 to the viewer it's so subtle they don't notice it but if it wasn't there they'd also the image wouldn't be as appealing to them you know Mm -hmm. and it's a lot of that subliminal level stuff you know you you can show any person who doesn't know anything about photography an image and they will tell you what emotion it conveys. Okay. They'll let you know, does it feel, you know, if you take the very rudimental emotions, like, does it feel happy? Does it feel sad? Does it feel scary? Does it feel ominous? Does it feel threatening? Does it feel dynamic? Does it, you know, does it feel fresh, punchy? They'll have words to describe it, even though they don't know how to control light. Mm -hmm. And the reasons for that is something called imprinting. It's basically just from memory. You know, if you asked a a blind person who was born blind and was never able to see, then of course they can't give you those experiences because they they can't give you those emotions to do with light because they've never seen it. So every way that we... uh, we describe emotion with light is based on past experience. And it's interesting because this is another thing that's quite fascinating with it is that you can associate feelings or emotions of light to do with uh, survival uh, as a species. So obviously the dark was a dangerous time, mm-hmm. shadows, caves, going sure, into sure. the dark, you know. So, it so taps into of, that whole lizard brain from it, thousands of years ago that we have. Yeah. Tap- taps into the instinctive elements of our survival, mm-hmm. uh, certain lighting conditions. Then you have times of day where, you know, sun is setting, the light is warmer. This may be a time of day that, you know, uh, evolutionary where you were settling down, campfire, whatever that, you know, so, so, so there are things that are instinctively locked into us, but then there are other cultural reinforcements as well, because movies have continued using shade and shadows and dark and mystery and strong lines to continue that that 
that sort of emotional feeling. So we have another level of imprinting, not only instinctively, but also culturally from what we watch and what we view and the, the, the things that are kind of reinforced on us. Um, but you take any person, no matter, you know, if they're older than six years old, seven years old, and they've got enough experiences or any other person who's got nothing to do with photography, they should be able to throw a couple of words at you about what the feelings and emo uh, uh, what emotional feelings the image describes. And that, the, the, the words they throw at you will not be based just on the content of the image. Mm -hmm. It will be based partly on the content of the image because that is the subject, the narrative, but it is also going to be dictated by the lighting emotion on it as well. Um, so, 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 so that is interesting because if you're able to know light sufficiently that you can control these things, uh, then you can influence the whole feeling of an image by that greater understanding of light. And then if you combine that with a good uh, ability to compose the image, to, um, you know, for the narrative, et cetera, the content, the con concept of the image, then you really hold the viewer's attention for longer. So you're just using the entire spectrum of the tool set that you have av available to you to control and hold the, the, the viewer's image for longer. Mm -hmm. And that's, mm -hmm. that's essentially it really you know? has has this become part of your process now when when you're shooting or uh in post-production are you thinking about it in in breaking it down oh. in these sort of simply simple terms of what do i want my viewer to feel from this image totally yeah totally yeah so if you take if you take um if you take for example there's there's a shot that i did that's similar to the 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 painting ophelia that uh, famous painting where i've got the girl the model lying in the pool of mm -hmm. water purple dress yeah purple dress yep. now purple is is an emotive color but it's an unusual color it's, it's one of the colors in the spectrum that doesn't actually have its own wavelength um you only get purple by mixing red and blue light together but if you actually look at the color spectrum there is no wavelength for purple there's ultraviolet but ultraviolet's below our frequency and we can only just see it and we kind of see it as a purpley thing but it's not purple it's different to mixing red and blue light together. Um, so purple's always been a, a, a magical color. So she's in the purple dress. If you actually look at that image very carefully, think about, so I've lit it a certain way and I've chosen that location and the rocks and the textures because of what it had to offer. I scouted it out. I recced it, spoke with the model about what we we're going to do here. Um, it was inspired by the painting Ophelia you know, the, the idea behind it. Mm -hmm. But what I've done in the, in the techniques, if you look at the image is you'll notice that the, I've got a lead in from the lower left, the rocks down by her hand on the lower left of that little bit extra contrast. The, mm -hmm. the hand itself is brighter yep. than everything. Her hand's a bright spot coming up out of the, out of the water. Yep. That arm is brighter than the other one as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's subtle, and then, sorry. It's subtle. It's very subtle. Yeah. But then, then also look at the color juxtaposition. If you actually look at the water in the pool, it's, it's green. Yeah, it's got a little is, bit of green to it. Yeah. It's got a bit of green. And that's because green's the opposite to purple. That's uh, the opposite to magenta. So that's going to juxtapose that magenta dress out more than anything else. But then the problem I had was very similar with the baby image is that the rocks are very textural, lots of high contrast on those rocks. So that's all been reduced. Hmm. So the actual rocks, whilst I don't want them to lose their texture, because it's the, the raggedness of the rocks that juxtaposes the beautiful skin of the model in many ways. You know, that, that, that juxtaposition is a juxtaposition in itself, but it was too competitive against the rest of the shot. So the contrast levels of the rocks have been lowered in contrast so that it doesn't compete. There is no real solid black in those rocks anywhere, mm -hmm. and there's no solid highlight apart from in the lower left round her hand. Got a couple yeah, of maybe just in her thumb, you know, that highlight along her yeah. thumb, maybe. So, so all of that has been thought of when I'm shooting it. Wow. So I'm conscious of it when I'm shooting it and lighting it, but you can't control everything, especially on location like this one in a you know windy conditions but it's going to definitely come into my post-processing. Mm -hmm. Did you um, end up having to pull the color of the dress one way or the other to get it where you wanted it? Or is this, is this pretty close to what it was? It's pretty close because it was a purple, it was a purple dress we selected for 
for that shot. Mm -hmm. But I definitely pulled the color of the water around her Mm -hmm. to the slightly greener shift, but only, only subtly because you don't want to make it obvious, you know? Um, and again, you know, the overall tones of the rocks and even the water, they kind of blend, you know, I've not, when, when you actually look at rocks for real, some of the rocks might be richer in red or richer in rusty color and some other bit. So I kind of take that color out a little bit and keep it more consistent, if you mm-hmm, know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, so I, I love this image and I, I oh, love what oh, you, yeah, thank you. I'm, I, I was, I was very pleased with that one. And I mean, hats off to the model cause that water was freezing cold. I bet. Um, we had, uh, we, we had her in a wetsuit underneath the dress, hmm. um, just on the legs and to the waist, but she still had to lie her back down in the water. Um, you know, in, in the cold conditions. So, um, yeah, it's terrific. And the processing on it is terrific too. I love what you've done with, you left a little bit of that red orange just above her head on that, on that diagonal coming down from, from center to left and then out of the image. And it looks like, and I, I may be way off base on this, but it looks like you didn't add the, as much green to the shadow on her, our, our right I mean, our left, her right side, so it doesn't muddy the shadows underneath yeah. the foreground. Yeah, I, I had to do a bit of work around the hair there where the head goes into the water because uh, the sh- I, I had no light coming in that side. I was mm. using a Para um, 88 or a 133 from the top right, as you can see, where mm-hmm. it's striking the face. And, um, you know, so I, I didn't have – and I didn't want to light in from the left-hand side – because that wouldn't be natural in an outdoor environment. Um, and even filling in the light on that side with a big reflector wouldn't have given a natural appearance to it. So I used the ambient daylight as my fill effectively mm-hmm. and just got the balance correct for, for keeping enough ambient daylight in there that I had enough shadow detail to work with uh, and getting that right with the light. Because I didn't want the light to look too studio lit it still wanted to feel like that could be you know light falling from a sort of orange setting sun or right. a, you know a, a, you know have that sort of you know that sort of mood to, to the shot as well um but I'm, i mean i don't work on location that much um you know most of my work as you know is in the studio so i'm having to make people or objects look interesting in a studio mm-hmm, space. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's, it is, I find it incredible because the, all of these processes that, that I've, I've been working with in the last few years, they all derive from just keeping what, you know, wanting to keep learning, digging a bit deeper, not just being satisfied with soft light, hard light, soft box, scrim point light source, but actually going, hold on a minute, you know, light comes out of this type of modifier and it does this because of this. Or if I use a mirror, that will do this. Or if I use a black mirror, it will do this. And it there, there are, or, or if I just take this very very weak Lee whatever cyan gel or you know and put that on that light, that's going to do this. To, you know, and and then obviously the post production stage is important. But I, as you know, with me, I don't like to do a huge amount of post production. I don't. Right. Nothing wrong with post production, but my post production is limited to burn and dodge and coloration. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, I don't take things out or put things in. I don't like to do it. You know. Right. Um. I mean, there's one one image on my website there of a fireman in flames, which is not my post production work because. It's it's great post-production work that Victor did there. Mm-hmm. Um, he took my studio shot of a fireman and then he, he he did a tutorial for us on how to do comping. And he put he bought a stock shot, put him into the stock shot, changed the coloration of him, created all the, the fire embers floating around and, and showed us how to build it in. But uh, that wouldn't be my normal work at all because that's not what I normally do. Um, so, so, yeah, so... Yeah, it is fascinating, and 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 I'm I read a lot. I still read a lot about this stuff because obviously, as an educator as well, you feel, or I think any educator should feel that they've got to keep researching, got to keep finding out stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, in many ways, I suppose I I stopped being able to find out any more about photography 
So I had to start looking at physics or biology or how we see as the next level, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it, it, it's still fascinating. Well, and it sounds like you're able to still keep that sense of wonder, but allow yourself to to evolve and not go, well, I've done this this way for the past 20 odd years and it's worked just fine. Well, yeah. You're, you're, you're allowing yourself to go, wait a minute, there's still, there still might be something here that I'm, that I'm missing. And whether that means a new piece of kit or trying what you have in a new way or going as you've done in the past couple of years to the, the biology and the actual way that we, that we see and interpret images and allow that to influence your art. That's pretty cool. I mean, that is, that is way into process uh, more so than many commercial photographers go. I I would say, yes, you're right. Um, And my argument would be that for everyone, no matter what they do, evolution is what drives any species to survive, isn't it? And, you know, if we are going to survive and stay at the top of our game, if we are not willing to evolve educationally, artistically, uh, you know, what's the point? You know, it's kind of like if if you get to that point in your career where you're just sort of shooting headshots or, um, portraits and you've got your go-to recipe method, you, 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 you know, what, how, what value are you getting out of that personally? And, you know, I've been there, I've been in that position where you're just sort of shooting the same stuff and you're just wondering what the hell am I doing this for anymore? And if, you know, you have to, I think if you, if you don't, if you don't have that opportunity to, to feel like there is somewhere to go somewhere to move forwards. And I've been very lucky. I mean, I've been very fortunate as well because, you know, commercial photography has suffered greatly in many years for many photographers. And I've had the education side of the business as an, as an extra facet to the business. And that's been a struggle sometimes, as you know, in the past as Mm -hmm. well. Um, but I've been very lucky to maintain my ability to just keep shooting. Okay. Um, and that, that is wonderful from my perspective because I often get people say to me, oh, you know, do you still shoot commercially or is it all about the education or what's the, you know, what's your percentage of you do this and this? And I'm quite happy to tell them the information, but the bottom line is I'm just happy to be able to keep shooting. You know, that's the thing. And with the education platform, I'm able to shoot what I want. Um, and then, you know, more recently, you know, other projects have come in uh, like like that marine pollution one where I'm able to shoot what I want, but it was for a good cause and it made a difference. You know, it's been it's gone worldwide, that image and been used all over the place. So 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 I think, you know, to be in that position, I'm very, very grateful. But evolution, as you were just discussing there. If we're not willing to evolve, then we're never going to we're never going to take it that next step further. We're never going to move forwards with what we do. We're going to become more depressed with what we're doing. We're not going to be as excited. So if you're not excited about what you're doing, then you're going to become fed up with it. So I think it's important for anyone, no matter what what type of work or what outside uh, hobbies, pursuits they have to uh, you know want to want to keep expanding uh, the experience basically that said do you feel like you're making your best work i think my best work is always yet to be made hmm. because i'm always you know everyone says to you well what's your favorite picture so when was you know and it's it's quite often it's the most recent ones because you got most excited about it or it's most interesting. But I think, yes, certainly in the last year or two, I've been making my best work and I've been very happy with that work and and how I feel about the work and how other people perceive the work. Um, But I think through this application of the science and the biology behind it and the way I approach it now gives me a lot more confidence in knowing how to create my best work because there's a reason behind the visual process Uh, of the viewer and it's taking that step back and asking yourself how do people see work rather than how do I use this softbox how do I use that parabolic or Fresnel or whatever what is it that they're going to see in the work 
and how do they process that information? That has been more powerful in many ways than technique. The tech You need to know the technique to be able to match those fundamental principles of how they see, if you know what I mean. You can't have one without the other because if you figure out how people see and the biology of how they see, but then you don't know how to apply the techniques to that, then obviously that isn't going to work either, you know? So you have to know some of the Ors Reca type stuff sure. that, that we spoke about, the, the science behind the light. And then you combine that with some of the stuff that Tim Flack put me onto, which is the biology science of how humans see. And then if you bring those two together in the middle, then I believe you've got the ability to understand how to create effective images. If you'd like to see some of Carl's work, including the images we talked about in this episode, head over to his website at carltaylor.com. That's K-A-R-L-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. If you'd like to check out Carl's new free introduction to photography course, as well as a ton of other photography education, visit carltaylereducation.com. You can also find him on Instagram at carltaylorphotography. Subscribe to Process Driven in your favorite podcast app, Or if you'd like to get every episode of Process Driven along with my other shows in between and iterations all in one feed, subscribe to Jeffrey Sidoris Everything. If you're enjoying the show, you can help others find it by leaving a review or a rating wherever you listen or by sharing it on social media. Connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Jeffrey Sidoris. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S or on my website at jeffreysidoris.com. And if you'd like to drop me an email, I'd love to hear from you. Email me at talkback at jeffreysidoris.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you being here. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'll talk to you on the next one.